welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello everyone and welcome to the Madden America podcast. This is your host for today, Ayurthi Dhar. I'm assistant professor of psychology at Mount Mary University and a science news writer at Madden America. Our guest for today is Dr. Tanya Lerman, who is a Watkins University professor in the anthropology department at Stanford. Dr. Lerman is known for her work on psychosis, religion, psychiatry, and a lot more. She has written and edited numerous books. Uh, For example, today we will talk about Our Most Troubling Madness, which is an anthropological analysis of psychosis across cultures, and Of Two Minds, which addresses the fractures and difficulties in American psychiatry especially in the training of young psychiatrists. Her work and she herself have received numerous awards. Welcome to Madden America, Dr. Lerman. So your work crosses both disciplinary and geographical boundaries. Could you tell us what you found about the relationship between psychiatric diagnosis and social identity in the US and how this relationship is different in other places like India? People who I came to know in the United States and mostly this was in California and in Chicago, are often exceptionally aware of the nature of diagnosis, of the terms. I mean, somebody, I remember giving uh, this this kind of young woman sort of a psychosis skit. So I had all these questions that I was asking to see if in my interview, uh, she would display or, you know, assent to the, to the questions that um, would designate her as some, somebody who, who met criteria for schizophrenia. And she, at one point she said, oh, I meet all these criteria. I'm so used to these questions. So I was really quite struck by that. In work that I have done in a couple of settings now in Ghana, in West Africa, in Accra, a big city in Cape Coast, this another large city, but sort of small by American standards. And in Chennai, in South India, mm-hmm. a kind of an enormous city with kind of chaotic, snarled traffic. Both of these were very sophisticated modern places, urban places. But people who appeared to meet criteria for schizophrenia simply didn't use diagnostic categories, didn't seem to think in terms of diagnostic categories. And uh, I think this may be kind of an advantage for the folks in Chennai and in Accra um, and in Cape Coast. Uh, I think that that these diagnostic categories, particularly for psychotic disorders, carry a quality of the diagnosis of death. They seem to evoke in our country a sense that one is crazy, that the crazy craziness is permanent, that uh, the craziness involves a broken brain, something that's kind of so central to our understanding of selfhood and identity in the United States. And that was just a lot less salient abroad. You've written about how cultures and contexts, um, they, can, they do shape the experience and the content, and this is important, the content, and then the consequences of voice hearing. Uh, right. Could you give me some examples um, that could tell us what you mean? How do cultures shape the content and consequences of voice hearing experience? So I did a study in which I, I with colleagues, talked um, in some detail with people who met criteria for schizophrenia in this country, 
And mm-hmm. the first group that I was talking to were outpatients in supported housing. Um, and we ta- I talked to 20 of them. I did the interviews in the States, and then I had two colleagues at the Schizophrenia Research Foundation, SCARF, in, um, in Chennai, very well-respected yeah. um, place. And my colleagues did interviewed 20 people, very similar people in age and length of diagnosis and locate, you know, they were more or less in, you know, day hospital supported housing in Chennai. And then I also interviewed folks, another 20 folks in, in uh, Accra. And I, I did the interviews, um, but I went into the hospital and these were Ill, patients who were more ill mm-hmm. and a little younger and I would go onto the wards with a Ghanaian research assistant. And then when I left, I had her go back and do some more interviews so that we, in effect, I was worried about, you know, what people might say to me because I had a white skin and I'm a foreigner and I was like so different in it. She found something sort of similar. And so let me tell you what I think we found. We found that the Americans uniformly hated their voices. This is not probably true for everybody, but it was pretty striking for the sample that I interviewed that they didn't know who was speaking, meaning that they hadn't met in the flesh the person whose disembodied voice they they could hear. They had very violent, there was a lot of violent content to their experiences. And that that those, those violent commands, that negative experience really captured their experience. So there was this kind of alien, unhuman voice saying terrible things to them, and it was highly distressing. So it was different in Chennai and Accra. And I don't want to give the impression that, you know, it's just fine to have schizophrenia in these parts of the world. I mean, the similarities in the illness were much more striking than the differences. But it was pretty striking that in Chennai, people heard commands, but the commands were more kind of everyday, ordinary things. Get dressed, don't smoke, you know, clean up. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a parent. (laughs) Exactly right. So that is exactly how they seem to be interpreting their voices. So over half of them heard as kin speaking, mm-hmm. they had negative voices, but the negative voices are much more sexual. Mm-hmm. Like the Americans, they heard sexual voices, but the, se- you know, and I'm, I'm, again, this is a little, little unfair. I'm kind of going to tell a story because we're talking together. And, but, you know, they, like there's one guy in the States who had to shut up in a dress. And he, so his striking experience was, you know, he would hear a voice say, give me the, bo- give me booty, give me booty, give me mm-hmm. booty. And his, uh, the content of his experience was all about sex and ideas about prostitutes. And, you know, it seemed to me that he was, you know, many of these phenomenological experiences, in other words, the feeling of the voice, yeah. these hallucinations that people experience, they're all, you know, probably multisensory to some extent. And I think that some of these voices feel sexual. and. The, Amer- the Americans are much more likely to, you know, when they talked about sexuality or these sexual experiences, to I uh, felt that there was some fun 
in, in that. That they, they were so they're complicated, they they cause them trouble. Whereas in Chennai, you know, people were more people talked about sex, twice as many people talked about sex. And when they talked about sex, it was, you know, it wasn't that there was never enjoyment or particularly for the men. It wasn't that I couldn't infer that there was some satisfaction, but the voices were much more likely to be shaming. Mm-hmm. So the voices were much more, so somebody would say, well, you know, yes, I, I masturbate. And, you know, was this something that, you know, and there seemed to be a mixture of experiences, a, a, a physical experience a, a, um, and a perhaps a, some quasi-hallucinated experience. But what he was struck by was that his mother-in-law was going to tell everybody. Mm-hmm. And his mother-in-law was a hallucinated voice. And so the experience, you know, was that he would do something and she would say out loud to everybody what he was doing and he would be humiliated. Mm-hmm. We had a number of people talk about that. In Accra and then in Cape Coast, those threads were still there. But what I was so struck by was this insistence that the voice was good and the voice was God, usually, or the gods. Um, and again, it just doesn't mean that the voices, you know, one of the people I talked to was somebody who strangled his sister. So it wasn't as if the, you know, so the, people don't always remember their experiences. Um, but, but people would say things like, you know, I hear God. If I hadn't, if I didn't hear God, I would be dead because God is helping me with this problem that I'm having. And in fact, in, uh, in Accra, um, I would have to ask in circuitous ways to encourage people to, or to allow people to tell me about their negative experiences. Mm-hmm. So I was struck by that. That was pretty, that was different. In my own experience of asking people questions in rural, not rural Northern India, in the mountains about hearing voices, mm-hmm. one of the things that I was struck by was how functional most people were. Like they would hear voices. Uh, some of them were really good. I remember a woman talking about uh, her mother having full-blown visual hallucinations of a huge dance party, like a barat, which is a wedding procession. And when I asked her, what did your mother do? She said, well, what would she do? She danced with them, which was, you know, yeah, nothing. But even when the voices were bad, and they were sometimes, or uh, symptoms would shift, people were still mostly functional. They they could take care of their families and go and do to their farm. So mm-hmm. what did you notice? Did you see a difference between like how functional people were in their daily lives in three different places that you did your research? It's a really good question. And it's hard to tell because um, I, you know, my samples were in effect sho- chosen for me by these, mm-hmm. by this setting. I did have a, a, have had a set of experiences that's relevant to this question. Mm-hmm. And that is the following. So when uh, I've been running this large team where we've been interested, the Mind and Spirit Project, we've been interested in the way that people think about their minds and their experience of spirit. And uh, in other words, cool, weird, anomalous, unusual, and sometimes more common experiences in which people interact with invisible beings. So in Ghana... In this project, we didn't go to India, sadly, um, but we did go to Ghana. And there was a there's a group of people there that uh, we ended up interviewing, who were people who were called a kung fu. Mm-hmm. 
So people who talk to the the local gods. And so they, and there's this kind of cultural model, set of ideas, it's very common, about how, you know, it's at some point, the human is called by the god, and then the human will resist this call. Um, and so the being called is often an auditory experience. Um, and then being called gets mixed up with the sensitive stuff. Um, so the person is, is mm-hmm. possessed by the god and... And so whoever I'm talking to is both able to dissociate and, you know, if they're psychotic, whatever their psychosis is, is intermixed with dissociation, whatever we mean by that. And so that, anyway, there's this idea that you're called. You're sort of demanding to be trained. So there's this idea that you will resist being called. So, and when, when you resist, other people will think you're crazy. Mm. And this will last for a couple of years. And then you go off, if you accept the call, you go off and you and you go for training, and the training is pretty tough. But you're, it involves listening to the gods who are identified as as, as good, even though you might be afraid of them, mm-hmm. and learning to disattend to the demons who you're not supposed to listen to. So I was really intrigued by the question of whether there might be people who would be considered to be psychotic who were functionally effective in these roles. Mm-hmm. And I, I can tell you more about how I thought about that. But I found 18 people, but about half of whom were the these traditional healers and half of whom were Christians. And I thought I saw four groups of people. I thought that there were people who really were you know, I thought that they, a clinician would wonder a lot about psychosis mm-hmm. because they described a lot of auditory experiences. They described demonic experiences. When they talked about having been called by the gods, they were really persuasively telling a story about how distressed other people thought that they were. So one man, for example, was like, yeah, my aunt came and told my mother to take me to the psychiatric hospital, but she didn't want to do that. So she took me for training. So I thought that was interesting. And there were other groups of people. There were people who just seemed to love going into trance. Mm -hmm. And there were people who said they heard voices a lot. And I wasn't really sure that that was a real experience from the way that they were talking about it. Mm -hmm. So I'm tempted to think that it's easier for somebody whose body is vulnerable to... um, displaying, expressing the kinds of symptoms that we associate with psychosis, to kind of wrap those symptoms in a culturally appropriate model, and that that causes the severity of the symptoms to abate to some extent. So uh, does this then relate to WHO's findings about uh, a lot of developing nations having repeatedly like better rates of prognosis, especially for hearing voices? I think so. I mean, the, those data are most robust for India. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's not just rural India, right? I mean, there's findings yeah. is Chandigarh and then there's yeah. Chennai. And Chennai is not where you go for rural tranquility. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, we know that three or four times people have really tried to probe those observations and they have found in India that if you look at somebody when they 
first fall ill and you you really search carefully you know you go to healing shrine you go to, to shrines you go to heal to healers you go to hospitals and you do the same in the states and in denmark and in the uk and in the other other settings and you look at those people two years later they look sort of 50 percent better in india and so, and I think that those, I'm pretty persuaded by those data. I think that the, ca- the caustic nature of the hearing voices experience might play a role. I think there are other things that play a role. I think that, um, you know, in our culture for a whole set of reasons, um, we, people who are psychotic end up on the streets, often as not, mm-hmm. you know, the figures are a little wonky. It's hard to know exactly. Mm-hmm. But the figures sort of suggest that this is a pretty common experience yes. for people. And I think it's a terrible way to treat psychosis. Mm-hmm. That happens less in India. Mm-hmm. It happens, but it happens less. But I think a lot of it is connected to the sense that, you know, the person with psychosis in our country learns a word, schizophrenia, that it it's an identity. It's mm-hmm. who you are. I was really struck in India. Um, one of my visits, I, I was uh, one of my colleagues introduced me to one of her patients. And if you gave this woman a standard psychiatric evaluation of the severity of her illness, like the um, hands, the positive mm-hmm. and negative symptom scale, mm-hmm. whatever it is. She would look pretty ill, but she was really functional. And, you know, she and her husband, I, I talked to her and her husband, I talked to her and her father. Nobody used a psychiatric diagnosis. Nobody, I mean, they, clearly there was an issue. Um, voice hearing was only a problem when it interfered with her life. So when she followed the God out of the house and got lost, that was a problem. But what really mattered to her husband was that she cared for the kids. She was sort of in charge of the kitchen. I mean, there were there was you know there, there was a servant, but you know she had a job as a as, as a wife or a set of expectations as a wife. And as long as she more or less fulfilled those expectations, that was okay. So what you're just saying right now um, brings me to two questions that I had. And one of them, I think you have you have noted in your book, it's about the place of families, right? The roles and responsibilities of families in caring for someone with men- mental health issues. And yeah. uh, I remember when I went to Balaji, which is one of the faith healing sites, there is there are partially horrible places to be at because they terrify you. Um, but at the same time, there were always families with people who were having what we would call a psychotic break. And even when I was doing my internship in a hospital, families of patients um, in psychiatric hospitals would just stick around. They would just be there as much as they could. And uh, normally in psychology, we tend to problematize family. It's the source of our distress and dysfunction. So um, what what would you say, like these cultural differences in the role of families in caring for people, uh, how does it affect those patients? And did you observe some differences in, you know, the way families participate, let's say? That's a really excellent observation. So in America, 
because we have the social safety net, because, you know, we, and, you know, because we have this model of independence, because people are expected to value their freedom, kids often leave their families by the age of 18. Um, They do not always return. This is one reason why so many, such a high percentage of people who have the kinds of symptoms that, you know, meet criteria for schizophrenia. It's like, I look at the numbers and I think that maybe half of those who meet criteria for schizophrenia end up on the street for some period of time. So in India, I went into villages with people, you know, went from, from Scarf and the families would assemble with their, with their ill family member you know, in the hospitals, the, the family's always present. There's just an assumption that the family, you know, the families always go to the uh, medical appointment with the patient or they very often go. And it's, um, you know, social support is just really important to, to humans. Mm-hmm. It can drive some of us crazy. I mean, I remember... Um, you know, my first encounter with an Orthodox Jewish community and in which, you know, such an intense, intense uh, communal life. And, you know, there are all of these, you know, generations living together, generations praying together, generations, you know, poking their nose into everybody's personal business. And I know that it can drive people, ordinary folks, Mm -hmm. kind of crazy. But I think it's, on average, great for the person with psychosis. Mm -hmm. It may not be as so good for the family, Mm -hmm. but, you know, the person with psychosis, the family knows whether they are uh, at risk of unpredictable behavior. Mm Family knows whether their risk of violence is often taking some measures to manage, you know, what their access to things that could hurt them or other people. Yeah. And the person with psychosis lives in a much more predictable world. And I spent a bunch of time on the street in Chicago uh, in this neighborhood where people with psychosis tend to congregate. So, you know, you could claim that this this three block square area had the densest per capita, you know, was, had the densest population of persons with psychosis per capita than you know any other place than the jail in the entire state of Illinois. So it was a really densely pop. You know, there are just a lot of folks. People would um, leave the hospital and make their way to uptown and kind of have this sort of nomadic lifestyle. Um, moving between you know, the homeless shelter and supported housing, then they'd get jailed, and they'd go back to the hospital. And I thought that, you know, I mean, I saw that women in particular, and I was mostly hanging out with women, you know, they had freedom. They were able to choose what they would do, and they were raped and beaten. Mm-hmm. And it made me, you know, that was really complicated because particularly if, you know, 
Like when you read Foucault, for example, there's this sort of romance of the romance of madness, and the madman is just truly free. And we want to believe that, and there's something so wonderful in that vision. Um, but, you know, the person, a woman with psychosis on the street, is just, her body is so vulnerable. Um, and then that happens less in India. It happens, absolutely yeah. happens, but it happens less. As someone from India, I will not romanticize families uh, because, oh God, they can be very suffocating and very annoying. But yeah. at the same time, it's uh, them being there is usually, not always, but usually always better than, than them not being there. Um, even at many faith healing sites, I would see families kind of being annoyed at the person who was having a breakdown, but they never left. And uh, that was important. Um, and people would leave within a day or two, either a hospital or a faith healing site, feeling whatever they would think was, you know, better. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a complex situation. All right. So with that, let me ask you this. Your work was covered by the New York Times. And uh, I think that's the first time I, I was exposed to your work. And it inspired some rather harsh, one might say, extreme reaction from the former APA president, Jeffrey Lieberman. I, I could not understand the, the sheer just anger in that. But so coming back to the question, why do you think that was the case? And how would you respond to his accusation that no other science will be asked to explain itself to anthropology? Uh, what would you say to that? Oh, I think that's ridiculous. Anthropologists, you know, their fields, you know, walk into each other's fields all the time. I think what was so upsetting to him, I had written this piece in which I said that this book that was this manual that was published in the UK called Understanding Psychosis mm -hmm. came out of this very official body in the UK, which mm -hmm. was a kind of the equivalent of the, you know, APA for psychologists. The British and, Psychological Society, I think, BBS. Yeah. 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 And, and it's, you know, and it said, made these pretty radical claims. It said, maybe it matters if you're somebody who seems to be ill. Maybe it matters to you to name this illness. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you want to take medication. Maybe you don't. Maybe you want to think about this, these symptoms religiously. Maybe you don't. Um, and so it's true that that, that that book is a pretty, you know, you could say anti-psychiatry book. I think that that would be too strong an interpretation, but I think that's the interpretation he placed on it. And then it's, um, it can feel difficult. It's like saying, oh, well, that's a psychiatrist. They don't know what they're talking about. And I wasn't saying that. I, I do think that there is a temptation in this country, and it sounds like you're familiar with this, that when clinicians are taught about hearing voices, they really encourage, they're meant to encourage their patients to ignore those experiences because they're irrational. And I think that there is this, this cultural data and, you know, these, this new movement that's coming out of Europe sort of suggests that for some people, there's this paradoxical finding that if you treat the voice like a person, mm -hmm. then it behaves better. And my 
own suspicion is that if you put the voice into a social relationship, that the, that the person who's hearing the voice finds that they have to experience that voice as within a social relationship. I think that's something. What you're saying also reminds me of uh, the fact that some of the biggest criticisms of the way a mainstream psychiatry is being done have, are, coming in, are coming from psychiatry. You had Robin Murray, who has been knighted for his work in um, you know, schizophrenia, writing an article saying, all the mistakes I've made in my career if Alan Francis, who chaired the DSM-4 thing, now coming and saying that we are diagnosing anyone and everyone. So mm -hmm. it seems like a nice change to their guidelines just now, like last year, maybe a few months ago, admitting that antidepressants can cause year-long debilitating side effects. And so there are these massive changes, which is why um, that kind of harsh response was something that almost, maybe it came like a couple of years ago, maybe that's why. But that's why I wanted to ask you about it. Talking about psychiatry, right? Your book, Off Two Minds, talks about the training of psychiatrists and the expectations from them. Sometimes they're asked to make really difficult choices when they're under training. Um, and could you just speak more about what you found uh, when you were looking at the way psychiatrists are trained and how these difficulties eventually influence their patient and patient care? So I was looking at psychiatry at the in the early 90s mm -hmm. and in the middle 90s, and it was still a pretty strong battlefield between the more psychodynamic approach, where people see um, you know conflicting emotions as the, as a cause of of symptoms, and where people think about the um, versus people who think about psychiatric illness as you know, caused by lesions in the brain that that um, or something that's gone wrong in the brain that maybe medication will fix. And I think that what I was struck by in my experience is for many psychiatrists, there's so little time. I mean, it's, um, you know, particularly these days, well, back then, but these days, uh, the pressure, the, in some ways, the real pressures came from managed care where there's a completely understandable concern to reduce the uh, the cost of medical care. And um, and so psychiatrists in particular, you know, will sometimes have 15 minutes to spend with the patient. And, you know, of course, then it becomes a symptom checklist and an examination of the, the medication and how the medication is working. And, you know, and, and, and so the encounter with a patient becomes understandably a kind of sorting exercise. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, mean, I was pretty, uh, I was pretty aware that, um, you know, there's this diagnostic nosology, kind of a, a list of categories. Somebody once explained the DSM to me as a combination of the Bible and the telephone directory um, back in the day when, <laughs> There were telephone books, um, and you know they, they mostly knew that you know these categories didn't capture the experience of their patients. Um, at the same time, they were you know so schooled in sorting patients, and so schooled and well you know let's try this this medication or that medication. Um, and so it was just easy for the person to be lost. Mm -hmm. 
You know, and I think even in mainstream medicine, we know that having somebody who cares about you as a person who's a doctor is pretty helpful to your for your care. Yeah, so I guess this is what you've called the crisis of uh, of managed care and just focusing on stabilization. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard people working at psychiatric hospitals and they talk about it being a revolving door. You see the same patients over and over you stabilize them, and uh, the more you work there, the more they say you lose faith in anything being a treatment because it's usually the same patient. Okay, so the question I'm going to ask you now is, um, I really like this because I have not read or heard much about this. Usually, you know, we think of um, peer counselors and the really important work that the recovery movement has done in an all-positive light. Uh, but you have actually talked about some of the challenges that peer counselors can face. And for our listeners, let me just explain. Um, peer counselors are people who have expertise about a certain condition, like hearing voices because they have experienced it firsthand and they can provide great help to other people. And I think you write, but like you've written, I think that John Hood, if I'm not getting the name wrong, yes, um, about that there can be complications and repercussions of doing that too. Could you say something about that? So I was really struck by John. So John was just a, he was very comfortable with uh, us using his name. Mm -hmm. um, he was, when I met him, the mental health person of the year in San Diego. Mm -hmm. Everybody was very proud of him. And he was, he was funny and he was so bright and he was so articulate and just so well put together. And he began serving as a peer counselor. I mean, he'd begun before, while all this was going on, you know, while he was getting these accolades and people were so aware of him. But he, um, because of the way that mental illness and schizophrenia in particular is understood in America um, as something that, you know, produces a broken, is the product of a broken brain. Mm -hmm. You know, he really also had this incentive to drop out of the system, to like, you know, really adopt the um, anti-psychiatry, uh, the, the um, sense that you should be, you know, art artistically, rebelliously resisting the man, the authority. And then he became a peer counselor, and all of a sudden, in his experience, he was the man. And I think the thing that really symbolized this for him most was that he had keys. So here is a unit, and I'm not sure whether he had been hospitalized on this unit, but he'd been hospitalized like umpteen times. And now, and he'd hated being behind locked doors. And so now he was given the keys to those doors. And it was a source of great pride, but it was also a source of great conflict. And he had also internalized the sense that he was, um, by definition, kind of not good. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this kind of quality of, you know, when he became a counselor, he was being asked to have a false self that wasn't his self. Mm -hmm. And so that was really, really hard for him. Um, people people's lives shit for all sorts of reasons. But during the time that I came to know him, uh, he decided to go off medications and, you know, and many of the people around him 
wanted to attribute it to the pressure of being a peer counselor. And then he became homeless, and then he sort of disappeared into the, you know, um, the anonymous world of the homeless. Um, and I reconnected after a while, and then he sort of disappeared again. Um, but yeah, I think it can be hard. Yeah. It can be hard because um, often, particularly in this culture, I mean, there's so much anger among persons who meet criteria for, for schizophrenia in, um, in treatment centers in this country. And I, I, I'm, I'm so struck by it. Mm-hmm. Um, such a sense of having been kicked out of the social world. And then to enter back in, it just becomes complicated. Mm-hmm. And uh, you pointed out that he also stopped his medication. And given what we know today about dopamine supersensitivity, I mean, right. um, that, that again is, is terrifying. Withdrawal and all of that comes with it. Plus, like you pointed out, the conflict of being the man versus fighting the man. Right. Yes. And given what you pointed out about, you know, already internalizing this identity of brokenness. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I have last two questions for you, and I will ask them together. One is, um, how did you end up be- becoming interested in, um, you know, studying psychosis and hearing voices across cultures? Mm-hmm. And lastly, what is, the, what is the most interesting or important thing that's happening in medical anthropology right now? Oh, that's a really good question, the last one. Um, I think that medical anthropology is um, newly uh, aware of the importance of working with clinicians. Uh, and I think that that's, so there, there was a period where we really had the sense of a critical medical anthropology mm-hmm. where the job was to criticize clinicians. And now there's more of an engaged medical anthropology where people have a sense that, you know, their knowledge really has something to contribute. And I think also clinicians are much more open to realizing that, you know, anthropologists um, and people who study the culture and, you know, and even the historical context of these experiences really have something to contribute to understanding the the illnesses themselves. Mm-hmm. I became interested because um, I think I've always been interested in how things become real to people. Mm-hmm. And I really began, um, I first became interested in religion. But um, my dad's a psychiatrist, and so I sort of grew up with stories about um, people in different worlds, in different kinds of realnesses at the dinner table. I mean, I grew up as um, as a Shabbos goy. So my, my mother, my mother's father was a Baptist uh, pastor, and my cousins are very conservative Christians. My father's father was a Christian scientist. My father went to medical school. That doesn't usually happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father became a psychiatrist. And so we had on the one hand, and, you know, was I, I can't say that I was confused about the difference between religion and psychiatric distress, but it was really striking to me when I was young that there were people, you know, these good people who had very different understandings of ultimate reality. And 
that was something we sort of bracketed. And then there were these other people who had experiences of ultimate reality that were really very ill and trying to, so I just sort of lived in that soup of trying, of mm -hmm. thinking about the nature of uh, the human connection with the real. Yeah. And so I think that, uh, that that's always driven me. Yeah. I'm glad you, you had to be in that soup for a while. <laughs> Thank mm -hmm. you so much. This has been great. Well, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.